0: It's a pleasure to have you listening to my show today. It's my serious sincerest serious desire for you to get something from it that will make your life richer, fuller, and safer. My name is Reverend Wynn Henderson. As an ordained Christian minister and a retired medical doctor, I have a dual perspective to bring you content to solve problems in your life. This podcast is the longest-running, single-hosted, spiritually-based radio-internet talk show in America. It has been on the air for over 25 years. I bring you information about the disease of addiction, about your purpose in life, and investigative reporting on truth just below the surface, I am doing this podcast, it's my first podcast in the last 90 days. And what happened was, I got a case of um, sepsis which went on to septic shock, and it uh, messed up seven of my organ systems, including speech, which you can discern if you've listened to any of my old programs. This one's going to be highly different. But I'm going to do the best I can and hope that you will forgive me for not being up to the quality that I was before I got sick, I went to four hospitals and it started in um, May of 2023 on the 28th day. And this is the first time I've been able to get out of out of the system, and back uh, on the air again. Now, today's uh, guest is Melissa Schoenfeld. She was a wife, mother, grandmother, and successful psychotherapist in upstate New York. Her community was shocked, When the news broke on Halloween 2014, when she was arrested for attempting to hire a hitman to take care of her grandson's abusive father, this is her journey of how childhood trauma can present itself in adulthood and do the wrong thing for the right reason. She served 1,385 days incarcerated in the New York prison system. Melissa has closed the door to her days of fundraising, playing Girl Scout leader, PTO president, ballet company president, And wife. Her newest door includes being a granny, and she continues to be a mom, sister, and a friend. She's always had a calling to help others, and while that hasn't changed, she has learned uh, a lot about self care. She was a psychotherapist for a couple of decades, and now she uses those tools for herself. She loves her dogs and traveling, and even though she's a better swimmer than a sailor, she enjoys small sailboats. Melissa is also very happy with a paintbrush in her hand as she tries to make the world a little more colorful. Melissa, it's good to have you on the show today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, and I'm glad you're finally on the men.
0: Yeah, you're the first show since my trauma, and we'll do the best we can for all the people that are listening today. Um, Your book is called Bitter or Better. I'm going to ask you in a few moments why the title, but uh, I think it would be easier, since I can't talk very well, for you to tell our listeners kind of run through what happened. Could you do that?
1: Sure. Um, Your first with the title of the book, Bitter or Better. Um, I went into prison somewhat angry and entitled, and I felt like a monster. And I left uh, with all of the layers of myself peeled away, divorced, and I got back the real me. And I realized in prison that I had that choice. It was under my power to become bitter or better and that prison would not offer any kind of rehabilitation. So it was up to me how I I chose to come out. And clearly I chose to come out better for it and not better. Um, This whole thing started, my grandson was born in 2012, and on day five, he was five days old, was at home with the other children in the house. Uh, He had children from another relationship and uh, the baby started crying he was hungry and he does what babies do they cry and he uh, turned around and looked at this child put his fist to my grandson's stomach and said quit crying or I'll punch you in the belly and it was in that moment that I knew that by doing nothing I had just done everything and that I would not go down that road again so I um I went home, and that's where the anger started to churn. And uh, let's see, that was in August. Two months later, my daughter asked to move back home that she couldn't take the abusive behavior anymore from her uh, baby's father and asked if she could move back home. She had been living in Florida, and we were in um, New York. So on Thanksgiving of that year, My then-husband flew down to Florida and came home with my daughter, my three-month-old grandson, and two dogs. And we all went from an empty nest to being one united family again. Uh, Things were very difficult. I got to see just what the damage was of what not just physical abuse but what emotional abuse does to somebody, how it just tore my daughter down to someone who... Um, I didn't recognize as the strong, independent woman that she once was. The, um, fortunately, my grandson was this happy little baby, so that made things a whole lot easier, but it was still difficult. As time passed, she decided she wanted full uh, custody. The, uh, the child's father did nothing to uh, help support financially, financially, um, not even with his presence, let alone, you know, any kinds of um, of, uh, financial support. So we went to the courts, and uh, the courts uh, wound up having him. uh, He didn't have to come up to New York. He was able to speak on the phone. And the third time, uh, they were able to reach him, and he was ever so polite. And the judge awarded him four supervised visits over two years, and then he'd be able to have the baby for a year to himself. Um, to me, that was unthinkable. And uh, that was the beginning of my road going downhill. I had uh, been working in my own private practice. I was a psychotherapist. Uh, my ex-husband is a dentist, still is. And we just couldn't understand how this could, could happen in our family. Uh, several months later, he did make a visit. Uh, he came up and ended up spending the weekend and his weekend visit, instead of counting as just one morning for a visit, my daughter allowed him to see uh, her son four times over that weekend. And when he left, right before he left, he became very demanding and um, he wanted things for my daughter that my daughter wasn't willing to give him. and. Had gone back down to Florida. My daughter had become friends with his children's other baby mama. And these two women were like two sisters. And they started talking and they realized that the cycle of abuse was just that start with the other mother first, then two weeks later it would go to my daughter. And together these two women uh, went into his Facebook account. He never changed the Facebook password and learned that another woman was coming up from his country of origin in South America, and he was going to marry her. And she wrote in there that she can't wait to raise all four of his children, especially the baby. In our eyes, it looked like he was going to kidnap this baby. So my ex-husband came into the room where I was reading and said, this has to end, enough is enough. And in that moment, I took the end to mean just that. Um, He asked me who I knew. I said I didn't know anybody to help us. He knew more people than I did, and then it occurred to me I did know somebody. I called. I asked for help, and I was told he could not help me. In the 10 minutes it took him to hang up the phone and then text me that he was looking to find me the help I needed, he had contacted our local police, and the police basically said, see how far she'll go. Clearly, I went too far. Um, about three weeks after that phone call, I received a phone call while I was away from home from someone who I actually thought was a patient trying to schedule an appointment, but in fact it was um, a police detective posing as somebody who could help me. I met him about two or three hours later at our uh, local mall, and I um, I explained the whole situation. He was sympathetic, and I... Um, I started down that that rabbit hole. Um, that was uh, in, in October of uh, 2014. On Halloween of 2014, I was to meet him and give him half the money, which I did. And he asked me, are you sure you want to go through with this? And I remember thinking, I don't know. And I looked at him and I said to him, Mom, what are you going to do? And he said, well, do you want a picture to see what, what I'm going to do? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, I can send you a Snapchat. It's 10 seconds, the picture's gone. And I said, what are you going to do with the body? And clearly, once I said body, that was, uh, that was it. But he just looked at me, and um, I jokingly, although it wasn't very funny, at the, you know, looking back at it, said, uh, throw him to the Gators. You'll be in Florida. And that's the comment that went international he left my car. Um, I remember driving by his vehicle very slowly, and I thought about stopping, but I realized I'm a witness, and he told me he doesn't leave witnesses. So one way or another, it was going to end for me. I wasn't going to stop this. I believed my family needed to be safe, and I I drove away. As I hit the traffic lights on the main road, three police cars, lights went off, and sirens, and I did not believe for a second they could have been chasing me, because who knew? And long and behold, it was me. They, they had me pull over into a uh, hotel parking lot, and it was there, I, I rolled down my window, I asked, what's the problem? And the female officer looked at me and said, we believe a crime was about to be committed. I was arrested, arraigned, and um, it all started then, Halloween of 2014. I went through the legal system. Uh, New Year's Eve of that year, the grand jury indictment was opened, and they found enough evidence that they were going to continue to charge me. Um, I had an ankle cuff put on so that they were afraid I was going to disappear. I don't know where I was going, but that's you know what they thought. And on June. 16th of 2015, I accepted my plea and I remanded myself on my grandson's third birthday, which was August 19th. I wanted something good to have happened on that day to not always think about the idea that that was the day I went to prison.
0: Wow. Okay, so you had this situation that came up and you you had the the hit, a murder, uh, put up to, to this detective uh, for how much money? A
1: uh, total of $11,000. The, the joke of it was he was the blue light special.
0: Yeah. Um, the police, they have a way of confusing people. Yes. Uh, But uh, that's just the way that they do things. Um, Let me ask you, you wanted your son-in-law to not harm your grandson, right?
1: He was never my son-in-law, and I'm grateful for that. I just didn't want him to hurt any more of the children or any more of the women involved. That was my real goal. I tried speaking with him. My then husband tried speaking with him. We got nowhere. He'd laugh at us.
0: So he was. He was not married to your daughter.
1: No, thank goodness, he was not.
0: Yeah. Okay. This this is a program that tries to bring spiritual truth to surface. So let me ask you what is your spirituality
1: um, I was born in the Jewish religion I practiced intermittently throughout my life till I finally stopped practicing in prison I learned a lot about my spiritual side I always thought I was spiritual but I don't think I really was until I learned so much more about myself and what uh, some of the the uh, more about why the traditions were put in place the way they were. Um, There was a uh, chaplain there who went so far as to make me her assistant to make sure that I'd show up to, you know, learn more of what was going on. Um, I find my relationship with the higher power has become a very personal one, but one that is... um, is very strong and very valued. Um, I don't
0: think I could do it alone, um, I know I'm
1: not alone
0: with that. You said uh, that you came from a Jewish tradition. In the Jewish tradition, uh, it says, Thou shalt not kill. How did you yeah. work this into your plan, uh, or did you not work it into your I plan?
1: I don't think I did. I don't think I could see past the harm that was happening in my family, and that I felt that my family was slowly being killed off because of this man. And I know that's justifying, and I know that's making excuses, which is not my intention, but I think that was my thought process at that point.
0: What do you think you would say to anyone who is getting ready to commit murder.
1: Don't. There are other options, even though you cannot see them. I know one option for us would have been to send my daughter and my grandson to friends who live in Canada until things kind of cooled off. Um, granted, she wouldn't have been able to come back into the States for a while, but they would have been safe, and certainly that would have been a legal thing to do. I had no right to even think of taking somebody's life. But you become so um, enmeshed and so clouded by what's going on, and the legal system wouldn't help. Uh, You don't know what else to do, and you go to some really dark places. And that's part of what happened. Um, I stopped sleeping at night, and without sleep, I think we all become a bit crazy. My marriage was on the downside for quite a while. This did not make it go down. This just kind of sealed the deal. But I I didn't have the support I needed. I didn't have, and I wasn't telling um, friends or family everything that was going on, so I didn't have the outside support I needed. And I think if you speak to other people, whether they can find an answer for you or not, just knowing that someone else cares, and can um, empathize with you that helps to give you the strength you need to make it through whatever the
0: crisis may be well I think that if I needed to talk to somebody that had on their mind the possibility of killing somebody I would try to get them into Christian counseling because I'm a Christian counselor and I've been to prison, and so uh, I think I could identify with somebody who is on the wrong way of thinking about things. But like oh, I, you definitely
1: sa- that. I definitely needed I definitely
0: that. But like you said, sometimes the best solution to a problem is not one that comes to mind. Um, so I just want to say that. To uh, to anybody that's listening, killing somebody is never an acceptable solution. No, it isn't. If you think you want to do that, regardless of how many reasons that you have, none of the reasons are good enough. So but there is
1: there is nothing that should make it okay because it isn't okay. I had no right. To- even think I could have a hand in
0: taking someone else's life. Did anything in your childhood um, influence you either on the surface or below the surface to come to this conclusion?
1: Yes. My mother uh, wound up being addicted to speed After she gave birth to my youngest brother, the doctor fed her pills endlessly to try to lose baby weight. And then when he took them away from her, instead of going through withdrawal, she found a Monday doctor, a Tuesday doctor, et cetera, for a week's worth of pills at a time. When the pills became um, fewer and harder to get hold of, she turned to alcohol. And being the oldest and the only girl, I'm the one who wound up being the child who had to take care of the parents. Um, My dad would be out working. My mother would also threaten my father as well. And I wound up taking care of my brothers. And it's the wrong order. You stop being a child and you have to be the adult, but you don't have the experience or the... um, emotional experience, really, to think like an adult. So you have a way of, um, I don't want to say taking over, but it's a fairness that you believe you have to help and take care of, of those who can't take care of themselves, not realizing you can't take care of yourself either.
0: So how did that impact you being a psychotherapist and impact you wanting to use uh, murder as a solution to your problem.
1: Well, without a doubt, that helped influence why I went into the field of of social work, without a doubt. Um, I think the murder had something separate in that it was this overwhelming sense of... um, trying to take care of those that you love and care about when they are unable to fully do that for themselves, and I tried with the skills that I knew that I had to stop the situation of, of abuse, but when that didn't work, I think the combination of everything going on around me, it, it just, murder seemed like the only answer, and I look back now, and one, I can't believe that was something I'd even thought of, let alone started that ball rolling. I mean, not a day goes by that I'm not grateful the man in the car with me was actually a police detective and not really a hitman, because I can't imagine what would have happened otherwise.
0: Now, a lot of people go to prison and come out unchanged or worse off than they were when they went in. I think that yes. that didn't happen to you. You came out better, better. so that's yes. that's the title to your book, Bitter yes. or Better. Yes. Now,
1: It um, was a choice.
0: Now, I went to prison for a crime I did not commit. It's been written about all over the place. and. Uh, you can read about it in my 46th book, Freedom from Addiction 4, but um, uh, when I went to prison for attempted bribery, I got two books published while I was in prison. and a lot of spiritual growth. So for me, it was a good experience, even though it was not an experience that I would have, under any circumstances, chosen. And so... I understand that. Yeah. You know, we could talk about our respective prison experiences but I, I think that we could be at this all day if we were doing, doing that. Probably, yes. I'll tell Ma'am, you.
1: The idea, I think, in prison is how you choose to manage your time. And I did not start out writing a book. I was writing journals so that my family would know what was going on and also so that I would never forget what had happened. And it was my brother who suggested I turn it into a book, as well as my daughter also. convinced me of that. And the book is so much fragmented because I couldn't use all the journals or it would have looked like the Encyclopedia Britannica. So we decided to go with just a certain um, angle, and that's why the way it is. But I made the conscious decision that I was not going to come out worse for this, that I had to find myself again. And the beauty of the not there is any beauty really in prison, but in the the facility I was in was it was a minimum medium and we all had our own rooms. They weren't actually cells. Um, you know, we had regular doors, I should say. And the point of being alone was I didn't have to deal with the frustration of someone who I didn't know or I didn't want there. I just had to deal with myself and my own demons. And when my husband came to tell me he was divorcing me, in case he found somebody he liked, he didn't want to look over his shoulder, it devastated me because I was married 37 years. And I, I cried at least once a day, every day for a year, Till one day I didn't cry and I realized, I'm going to be okay, I can still breathe. And through the grace of the women I was housed with, they got me through that. I don't think I could have gotten through it without them. So when we think of a prison too often, we think of of criminals. You know, we're all criminals who were there. Uh, I think for many of us, we made a really big mistake to wind up in prison. But it doesn't necessarily have to define who you are, assuming you do some work to move past or make some kind of amends or whatever happens. Um, it still stays with you, but... I am grateful, again, like I said, to the women I was housed with and even a couple of the correctional officers who also listened to me and, and helped me find me again.
0: Right. Your book, uh, and, and I, have, I have done well over a thousand reads of books for my radio show. Okay. Is, is different than all the other thousands of books, in that where it has a place for the author, it says inmate formally known as I five G zero seven one seven. Your name is not on the book. Why well, say no, It isn't.
1: I, um, I also have a son and the that I made with my son was that uh, my name would not be on the front of the book. So I decided a little tongue-in-cheek that in prison, that's all you're known by is your number. Um, occasionally, they'll yell at you with your last name, but typically, it's your in number. And I thought uh, that's who I was during that time period. So that's who wrote the
0: book. And your son had you do this because he was ashamed of you
1: um, I was very it was a very difficult time for my son he was in um, he was finishing up his postgraduate work and he um, I don't want to say I guess he was embarrassed and so much humiliated because he wasn't home when any of this happened he wasn't privy to what was going on in the family uh, He felt left out, which I think was a good thing in so many ways that he was left out of it. But he also, um, he didn't want the association with what happened. He wanted his, the woman who was his mother, not the woman who went to prison. So this was my compromise.
0: I see. Well, I looked and I looked and I couldn't find the author. So I said, (laughs) I don't know what's going on here. This is the first time I've seen this in well over a thousand books. Anyway, yeah. that's that's the explanation. Yes, yeah. it was uh, a very difficult time for him. You got a closer relationship with God while you were in prison.
1: I thought it, and then I um, I accepted it. My uh, why? Um, sometimes I think you need answers that maybe only God can provide. Because sometimes why isn't important. You just need to know that that God's with you, that you have strength from that, and knowing, um, no matter what you've done, you're still loved, and um, He's still there for you. And if you're willing to do the work, so.
0: I'll take you by the hand. Right. When before I went to to prison I was a successful medical doctor and through a course of events I got uh, maliciously accused of trying to Um, bribe a district attorney to stop hounding me uh, for a program I was doing which was a um, a um, what is the word I want to use Um, I apologize this uh, this um, illness has uh, killed my my memory, pretty much. But at any rate, I was doing a study in my practice on the effects of Valium. Mm-hmm. Is it any good for you? Is it bad for you? Whatever, like that. And as a, and as a result of that, I had two thousand patients um, on. Valium at the regular dosage, and uh, it came to the attention of the government. And one one official said, "Even God doesn't prescribe that much Valium." Well, that was cute, but they were (laughs) (laughs) out—they were—they were out to get me and make an example out of me, and it tells in the book how they did that. But at any rate, unless you read my book, you won't know. But once I got into the system, (coughs) and I was confined in a cell uh, awaiting transportation with 30 other prisoners with the lights off, twenty three hours yeah, twenty three hours a day, of course, I was terrified yeah. that that wasn't my life up until the the judge said um, thirty three months, and they put me in handcuffs and led me away, but very shortly after I got there, I was praying. I prayed, why am I here? And um, it wasn't very long after I made that prayer that I had a remarkable extrasensory vision, if you will. God came to me. I didn't see him. I heard him. And he said, the reason that you are here is because you have the ability, the intellect, the stamina, whatever, to do something I want done. And he said, I want you to write a book because too many of my children are being bamboozled by Satan." And are being killed, and their lives are being wrecked by his lies. And I want to tell you how to cure their addictions. And so I'm going to give you this information, and you just write the book while you're in prison. And if you will do this... I will promise you three things. God said, I know that you're afraid of being harmed and hurt in prison because it's not a safe place. So first off, I'll promise you that nobody will lay a hand on you. He says, Secondly, I know the government has taken all your money and you don't have any financial support. So I will provide the means for you to get your book published. And thirdly, when this book that I have told you what to write is published, I will get you set free. Well, well, I thought that was a pretty good deal. I think so. And so, and so I said, "Yes, I'm all in." And starting at that moment, I started planning and writing that book. And as you might know, it's not easy to write a book in prison. They don't—they don't want you to do anything creative. They want you to uh, sweep the floors. Not even creative, nothing productive. <laughs> right. So, yes. so, would you like to hear what happened? Yes, I
1: would.
0: Nobody touched me. I didn't get harmed in any, any way in the twenty-four months I was incarcerated. Oh. Uh, God had a, another prisoner who heard my story get his parents to finance the publishing of my book. It cost them $5,000. And when that that book showed up in prison, it was called The Cure of Addiction. When that book showed up in prison, the jailer came within 40 hours and said, Pack your bags, you're going home. And I'd only served 24 months out of a 33-month sentence. And there's no parole in federal prison. And you know what I didn't do? What I didn't do was, I didn't say, this must be some mistake. (laughs) I got my stuff together. I got in their car, went to the airport, and I went home. And I don't know what happened, how it happened, anything. I just know that God promised me three things, and he fulfilled all three of those promises. So So if you're listening today and you say, I'm addicted to something, I help people with 30 different addictions all the way from eating too much sugar to being a narcissist. And since says they're all caused from the same thing. And God uh, tells in the book I wrote how to cure yourself from whatever your addiction is. um, It is something that Everybody should try. It won't hurt you to try, but I don't have any failures. If the people do three simple things, which I tell them in the book, then everyone gets cured. I've never had a failure, and no other addiction program in the country can say that. Well, the the first thing is that you have to want to get well. There's plenty of people out there that might say they want to get well but don't really want to get well. They're not willing to do what it might take to get well. So um, that goes back to the Bible, where Jesus came across this man at the pool of Bethesda. He been laying there for thirty-something years and couldn't get into the healing water. And Jesus' question to him was, "Do you want to get well?" So that's my first thing. If you don't want to get well, you're not going to get well. There's nothing I could say to you that would help you or anybody else. The second thing is, you have to believe that you can get well. And belief is the most powerful spiritual tool that any of us can use. With full belief, we can move mountains. And I guarantee you, some of those addictions seem like mountains. So you have to prove to me or to yourself that you actually believe. And uh, the uh, third thing is the whole program is in the book. It's written on an eighth grade level. Anybody can read it. Anybody can do it. You do the program. It might take 45 minutes a day to do all the parts to it. But if you want to get cured from all the bad things that have been happening to you in your life, and the possibility of an early death, you'll spend that 45 minutes. And so those are the three things. None of them are that hard to do. And the people who do them all get healed. The people who don't do them don't get healed. So that's an overview of the book, and it's called Freedom from Addiction Four. You can get it at Amazon, and uh, I hope that those of you that are listening today will, will go get that book and and get better or better by Melissa. Don't feel. Um Do you have it on Amazon, Melissa? Uh, it's
1: am- yeah, it's Amazon Kindle, uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, publisher, which is Doran, Um getting it republished, so we're going to see what'll happen. Uh, you know, once that's finished, but it's uh, it's available. You know, wherever you buy books.
0: And you can get it in. A- soft cover because i've got one i'm looking at it right now yes yes okay
1: you know i just want to and I, i want to validate what you just said um those three principles and you have to want to get better my mother i don't believe ever truly wanted to stop being an addict so she really never did she would behave more like a um a sober, tr- well, a sober drunk is really what. But it came down to behaviors never changed because she never really wanted them to change. She only stopped doing certain things because it wasn't accessible, or it cramped certain other parts of her lifestyle. You're absolutely correct in those those three premises of how people get well and how they they, they change for the better.
0: Well, thank you, uh, all the people who have read the book which was dictated to me by God directly and you know God doesn't make mistakes if God if God says do this and you'll get this result that's exactly what will happen and like I told you with the three promises for those three things to happen by coincidence would be like me winning the lottery even uh, not as good a shot. So uh, so, yeah. so I know that, that God told me, uh, you know, there's things that are in the book. And I know that he wants each of you to have the best life possible. So please take the, take what you've heard today and do something positive with it. Um. You know, I'm getting tired, and my voice is failing, so I'm going to give you one last chance to say anything that I've missed, and I'm sure I've missed a lot of stuff, but it's a good book, and they ought to get your book, better or better. Do you have anything else you want to tell the public before we close? Well, just in the way of...
1: uh... Because someone went to prison does not make them a criminal for the rest of their life. They may have done something that was criminal. It doesn't have to define them if they, they're able to turn that around. And I believe there's even a Bible story about this with um, going up to see St. Peter, two men, and uh, St. Peter looks at them and says, Well, before I can let you enter the gate, I want you to go back down to earth. And get as many stones as you believe you've committed wrongdoing and sin. So the first man goes back up and he's, he's scrambling for all the little pebbles and stones and getting them from all over and they're falling out of his pockets and from the shirt he bunches up and his pants cuffs and he goes back up and Saint Peter looks at him and says, "Well, I'll tell you what, um, that's great. You got all these little little, you know, issues here, but go put them back where you found them. Goes, I don't know where I got them." says, you're not coming in either. The second man comes up with a boulder that he can barely hold. And St. Peter says, do you know where you got that?" Go put it back. And he did. He says, you can come back up. The mistake I made was one huge mistake. And it was out of my character. It was out of desperation. And it doesn't make me a criminal. What I did was wrong. And it was criminal. But the legal system needs to find a way to help people when they are in uh, that kind of eminent danger, and they need to find a way to kind of neutralize it so that people don't go doing stupid, outrageous things like
0: I did. I also might make the comment that not everybody that goes to prison is a criminal. Exactly. Um, You know, there are a lot of reasons why law enforcement throws people into jail, besides the fact... It's a business. It's a business. That's
1: what it comes down to. You know, the the inmates become commodities, and you are not encouraged to do better and not come back. You know, recidivism is the way it is because you're not given all the tools you need. And I was most fortunate that I did have the tools that I did have the support on the outside, but I don't think I was the normal. So I consider myself blessed in many ways to have been able to get out and to thrive in spite of it.
0: Exactly. How do people get in touch with you? Uh, Are you soliciting people to... I
1: do. I do do have a website uh, with my full name, that's the website. Uh, they can send me an email, which is, uh, it looks like Mr. Schoenfield at com, And uh, you can always find me on Facebook, TikTok. Uh, I think I even might have some Instagram. I'm not sure there. But um, I, I am easy, easy to find if someone is interested in, you know, trying to speak with me. I do respond to all uh, mail that I do get.
0: Great. Okay. Well, like I said, this is the first show after they only gave me a 10% chance of getting out of the hospital alive, and I'm grateful and thankful to be back at it and to be doing Freedom from Addiction, and uh, for that, um,
1: <laughs>
0: for that podcast. It's freedomfromaddiction.libsen.com. You spell libsen, L I B S Y N, and it's no caps, no spaces. And I probably have put up over 400 or 500 shows that you can go back and listen to, depending on what you like. But my purpose or mission in life is to spread the message that there is a cure for every addictive behavior. This is a spiritual cure, and the treatment program is profiled in my book, as I told you, Freedom from Addiction, the number four, the final message. If you meet three simple criteria, everyone cures their addiction. The uh, book is available on Amazon. I have three free resources where you can start your journey. The first is a link to the podcast, as I told you, freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. The second is a link where you can get my website and find out more about my work with addiction. It is freedom from addiction, the number four.com. And the final resource is my Twitter account. You would search for at HugoTheArtist on Twitter.com. There you will find over 2,400 inspirational and educational daily pearls of wisdom. And now as we leave, I wish you the best life available, both to my guests today and for everybody listening.